Best Book Bits podcast brings you Christina Mandlakiani, a co-founder of Mind Valley, a global education organization offering top training for peak human performance to hundreds of thousands of students all around the world. She is an entrepreneur, international speaker and artist and very popular author. Christina, thanks for being on the show. Michael, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. No worries. I want you to take us back to your mid-20s working in the government office in Estonia and how your journey unfolded from there. Can you take us back or even before that time as well as a university student? How did your journey unfold? I think mid-20s was actually a time of changing. I had myself figured out earlier than that, being a perfectionist and a good girl and ambitious and competitive. I think we all rush so fast into life and we think we have figured out. So yeah, I started my career in the government. I studied politics, so it seemed natural. I think part of the reason why it happened this way was because I was born in Soviet Union and Soviet Union was a very restrictive environment. So politics and government seemed like the only place where I could travel the world and do something different. But I got married at 25 and moved to New York. That was a a little bit of a shock to my system because I had been successful all my life. And then when I moved to New York, I had to reinvent myself from scratch. I ended up in, in business and in personal growth. And it was a fairly rocky path. But then it was the next time it was in my mid, not mid, it was in my 40s when I realized that maybe I haven't figured myself out yet. And that's when I transitioned from being an entrepreneur. And I'm still in that field in personal growth and transformation, but I transitioned to becoming an author, which is a much more mature decision, I believe. The last five years, I've been mostly doing the writing and the speaking and being an author and much less of doing active business. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into the story of the authorship. And But I want to take us back to how did you co-found Mind Valley? How did that start? And how did you start your entrepreneurial journey? What was the reason for it? What did you get into this particular field then? I gave out the answer. The reason was my husband. <laughs> and the fact that I had moved to New York and I had to reinvent myself. Nobody wanted me there as, an, as a bureaucrat, obviously, <laughs> from a different country as well. I actually, my visa didn't allow me to work. So I thought that the best thing I can do is help help my then husband vision with his business. He was just starting Mind Valley, but also working a proper job at that time because we were young and we needed to live on something. So Mind Valley was a side thing. And because he had an office job and I didn't, I thought this is the best use of my time. So I started helping him. So I, a short answer would be, I ended up in personal growth and in business reluctantly and by accident, <laughs> which is the complete story. Because you see, as I said, I was born in Soviet Union. We didn't have business. It was illegal. So I didn't have any entrepreneurial models in my childhood or even my teenage years. So business wasn't anything I was ever thinking of. Yeah, reluctantly and by accident. That's how I ended up in Mind Valley. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing. And for people that don't know what Mind Valley is, what is Mind Valley? So we are probably the world's biggest platform for personal growth and education. And we provide edu- uh, personal growth and education online and in live events. It's, you can imagine a publishing house that publishes personal growth books, but this is just a different format. So we work with the world's best authors and we have an amazing community of students and we've been around for a long time. So it's, I think a slightly less direct answer would be Mind Valley is a lifestyle. Yeah, understand. Did it start off as a meditation practice at one stage or was that sort of the area that Vision was involved in? It was his side business, yes, because he needed to earn proper money for family life in the US. He studied actually 
meditation technique called Silva Method for his personal use. He found it incredibly useful and helpful, so he wanted to to become an instructor. So when we were getting married, it was 2003, approximately at that time, he became an instructor and he needed to fill his classes, so he created a website to advertise, not so much to advertise, to talk about the Silva Method, and then through that website attract customers to his live classes. But the model, the marketing model, seemed to work very well, and he was also doing Google advertising at that time, which was very early. 2003 is the beginning of that world. And then his friends started asking, his friends who were in the same industry started asking for help and advice, and we became a publisher. Of course, in 20 years, Mindvalley has evolved a lot. We started with more like a marketing service than as a publisher, and then we reinvented ourselves to be an actual educational platform, which means that you don't just publish the teachers who you have access to, but you go out and see what kind of education people need in personal growth and transformation, and then you find the teachers to, to fill the gaps. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I want to talk about your journey a little bit. I've heard you talk a little bit about before COVID and COVID times, you, you went back home to Estonia and uh, the world shut down and you were finding yourself again. What was that journey like and the, some of the challenges that you went through and rediscovery and writing another book? And yeah, can you talk a little bit about that journey and how that transitioned from a busy life to a quiet, probably life in Estonia? Yeah. <laughs> to a more busy author. <laughs> A lot of things coincided at the same time, so I can't tell what was the most trying of them all. Probably not COVID per se, because COVID is just another set of circumstances that happened to humanity, but we've had, I mean, in our long history, we've had so many things happen to us that, that obviously we'll, we'll shrug it off eventually and move on. But in my case, we also decided to part our ways with visions. Our divorce happened just a year before COVID hit. Uh, we actually ended up being stuck in the same house <laughs> during COVID with my ex-husband, which was a little bit funny, but we thankfully we have a good relationship, of course. And then COVID was the reason why I wanted to move back to Estonia. I lived in Malaysia for 16 years because Vision is Malaysian and we start, we actually have the biggest Mind Valley office there. So we lived there for a long time, but I think I've always wanted to go back and COVID was just a good reason to finally do something which, you know how we often have that dream, but we don't go for it because we need this push or we think that we need this push. So COVID was that push to go back to Estonia where I live again with my parents, which I haven't done in a long time. So yeah, there were a lot of interesting things. Plus I hit my middle ages at the same time. So what really was the most trying, the divorce, the aging, the moving back with your parents, <laughs> I can't tell. But the result is the book, although it doesn't talk about my story at all. In fact, I don't say anything of what I just told you in my book. But when you're confined with yourself for days and months, then you are bound to be existentialist <laughs> and bound to discover a lot of things about yourself. Similarly to, like I said, in New York, I found that the best thing I could do was to help Vision start Mindvalley. So the best thing I thought I could do in my long confinement was to, was to sit down and finally write the book. And tell me a little bit about the book. It's called Flawless, I believe, and you break the mold as you take the reader through the journey as well. And one of the things you talk about, and it's not released just yet, but I've had a bit of a sneak peek. You say about the dark, controversial side of personal growth and the insecurities that thrive in it. Can you expand on that a little bit more? I've got my own sort of take on the dark side of personal growth. It's not always cracked up to be all the time, but someone that's involved in one of the largest personal growth companies, so it'd be great to hear about 
what you mean by the dark side of personal growth? Yeah, I believe I, I take the liberty to do that because I've been in this industry for such a long time and having been on the producing side of it, I feel that we, everyone who has been working in personal growth for the past 20 years have contributed to what we have right now. In a way, it's it's completely out of owning uh, it that I, I take the liberty to actually criticize it. It's not really criticism to personal growth, my book. It's called Becoming Flossom and it is probably the opposite of what personal growth is associated with because personal growth is essentially about becoming a better version of yourself, which I totally agree with. However, what I disagree with is the the basis from which we depart. Very often people go into personal growth and transformation because of this because of being life being unbearable in that shape and form that it is. And we we aspire to be something much bigger. And I think it's not it's not purely personal growth industry that suffers from that. Our society, our contemporary society is incredibly exhibitionist and <laughs> and <laughs> showy and flashy. So it's natural that we we compare ourselves uh, with the rest of the world. We've always done that, I think, but it, just that we didn't have that much access to the rest of the world's private lives. And also we have become a little bit too too polished too too much showing off facade and not showing the interior so i feel that people nowadays have such a strong strain and pressure to be better than what they are that it's becoming counterproductive in fact i think that obsession with perfectionism creates the dark side because i'll bring an analogy because that's probably an easier thing to understand when you fall in love with someone somewhere some people have it consciously other people have subconscious list of what some what makes someone else a perfect partner for them and when you see someone who starts ticking off those boxes i do not know kind funny in the present whatever it is whatever you think it makes someone a perfect partner you start falling in love with that person and you close your eyes on the things which maybe are red flags and that's a natural phenomenon in psychology because we also, our biology helps because it drugs us into being a little bit blind towards the object of our infatuation. But then after a while, when when you know someone for a long enough time and the biology takes a step back and lets you just breathe and be yourself, you start noticing the person for what they really are. And here we have a choice. Either you love the person for what they are, the way they really are, not just the things that were ticked in your list, but also the things which actually maybe you didn't want in your partner. Like, I do not know, they snore or they munch or whatever it is. And maybe there are like harder things. Or you get disillusioned and you unlove the person. So in, in our relationship with ourselves, very similar mechanisms work. We have the picture of perfection, the best version of myself, and we aspire to that version of ourselves. And we are ready to love that version. But whenever something is off from that picture, we really don't know how to deal with that because nobody teaches us. We're taught how to aspire to be a better version of ourselves, how to love that better version of ourselves. But nobody wants to talk about it. So what do you do with those things which are not perfect? How do you treat them? What do, you, do you eradicate them? That's what we are taught. You have to eradicate all your flaws, but that doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You can't eradicate a part of yourself. You have to learn to live with that or to bridle it. And that's what the book is essentially about, where you get the courage to face yourself the way you are and to learn to love yourself real, not the perfect. What one of my takes on the dark side of personal growth is more of the dark side of the industry and the... <laughs> 
2023, so people have marketing down pat. And I've had this conversation recently with a, with a subject expert who's not well known, but very smart individual. And he told me the exact same thing. We had this conversation and he goes, he knows the same people I know. And he's on the same level knowledge-wise with these people. One person is celebrity known all around the world, sold tens of millions of books. If I say his name, everyone would know who he is. And he's very close with this person. And if they were neighbors, they would see each other every day and have a conversation. The only difference is marketing. One person's known through great marketing, like weapons of marketing, and the other one is not so much known. And it's very similar with the personal development industry, which I'm involved in as well. It's you've got great marketers and they have the same knowledge. And then you've got great people that have the knowledge, but they don't want to be out there as well. And a lot of people think you have to tick all these boxes for quote unquote success or entrepreneurship. You've got to be an international speaker, entrepreneur, have multiple businesses doing eight, nine figures. But at the end of the day, there's nothing wrong with just being a family man, a woman, a guy, have friends. Like you can tick all those personal growth boxes off in your own life and you could be surrounded by your friends and family who love you and see you as a success and you are the best version of yourself in a very small circle. And a lot of people think they have to, the opposite is true, like they're unsuccessful because they're not well known and they're not ticking those massive illusionary boxes and the unhappiness is there even though they have internal like success, but they're very unhappy because they're not ticking those society boxes that put around them as well. What do you have to say or think about that? Yeah. So yeah, of course I have a lot of feelings about that. There's one more reason why some people don't strive to be world famous. And what we are talking about, what we were talking about right now is the definition of success, which actually don't touch too much. It's, it is what it is, but the key word here is fulfillment. How, uh, what makes you fulfilled? As I was publishing the book, I also had this dilemma, dilemma between my heart and my head, or in more practical terms, do I want to stay true to my values and to my quirkiness, to my obstinate desire and need to be myself, or actually compromise certain things about myself for the sake of success? Because you see, when it comes to marketing, you sometimes have to say things that you're expected to say. You have to go against your values occasionally. And when I was publishing my book, of course I had that question in front of me all the time. Do I follow the rules so that I have a chance at making it, at becoming successful and known? Or do I stay true to my values, to my unique quirkiness? Knowing that might actually make me, um, I do not know, maybe not popular, not famous, not have that chance at success. And it's a balance that we don't talk about because you can't go one or the other way. You actually have to find the middle ground because if you go full on for success, I guarantee you will feel at times that you're selling your soul to the devil. And yes, you will make it up there, but you might feel discontent inside because you know that you are not true self out there in the public because you've had to compromise certain values, certain things about yourself just to have a chance to make it. And that's a very miserable experience. But the opposite is also not a solution because you can't just stay true to yourself and not play by the rules of the game because that way you won't have any audience. A book becomes a book when it finds a reader. Before it finds a reader, it's a journal, it's a diary, it's anything, it's not a book. So you really have to know when you're ready to compromise something about yourself for the sake of success and when your unique self is so important that if you compromise that, no success is worth it.
Yeah, it's such an interesting journey that we all have to take and we got all got to take our own steps. No one can take our steps for us. We can watch other people's steps and know the path, but our journey is so unique that it's do we it's, do we spend more time on marketing ourselves? Do we spend more time on being authentic? It's that sort of push and pull of growth. It's external growth, internal growth. Very interesting stuff. If you don't mind, I'll make a remark because I think we are underestimating the marketing through your authentic value. We we think, and I'll touch upon maybe a little feminist topic. But it just illustrates so beautifully. Women got to, let's say, political positions or to the boardrooms fairly recently. I do not know, maybe end of the 20th century when it became more or less of a trend. But what we also see that women who get into, let's say, the male world, they very often become a little bit men. Because we feel that when we get into that world, we have to fight by the rules of the game. We have to become men. Unfortunately, because of the way the stereotypes work and because of the way the social roles work, when women lose their feminine qualities and acquire masculine qualities, which stereotypically are not considered feminine, they're judged very harshly. So... A similar thing happens with your unique, trying to be unique and still making it big. Very often you think that to make it big, you have to lose your uniqueness and become like any other teacher out there. Spoken with perfect American accent. <laughs> that I, it's my pain is speaking. I don't have any definable accent. You have to say, you have to do the same tricks on stage and all of that. Then when you go on stage, everybody says, oh, this is a good speaker. I can tell it from the distance. But I've been in this industry for a long time, and I tell you, the world doesn't need another clone of a big, famous speaker. I've seen so many of those, which you, at some point, you just start losing track. Because there is, do you know how it is in music? There is sophisticated music. There's music that has changed the landscape of music. I think Bach wrote down the scale the way it was. I might be mistaken. And then there's pop music, which is very easy on the ear, which is very easy to, and I have nothing against pop music. I actually listen to that too. But there is mainstream, simplified, very easy, digestible stuff that masses consume. So not everybody has to be a pop star. You can choose to be in your industry, maybe lesser known, but very significant player to actually shape your industry. The question is, how much do you need fame? Because you can make money without being super famous. You can be successful. You, have make enough, you can make enough money. You can have a very comfortable life without being super famous, without selling your soul. So it's your choice. It's your choice. Do you really value fame above everything else? And not everyone's going to be a cup of tea because you are champagne. That's a quote I heard once, which is great. Never dim your light just because others can't see it. So yeah, being authentic, being yourself, but it takes maturity and it takes personal growth as well to understand that you are unique and your voice is your voice. I get a lot of criticism because I'm Australian and I've got a big American audience and they say, can you speak English? And I'm like... I speak Australian. I can't help that. And it's one of six years of criticism. I, one thing I can't change, I can't change my accent. And I'm like, I, nothing I can do about it. Moving on, we'll jump on another topic, which is uh, you talk about as well, self-care versus self-love and why you need both as well. Uh, we're in an age now that self-love, no one's going to love you as much as you love yourself or to the degree in which you love another or open yourself up to 
self-love. And you can see that if someone's wearing self-love, you can see the opposite. If someone's not wearing self-love, it's the best perfume I think around. And it's, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about self-care versus self-love and what's the difference? Yeah. I want to still linger a little bit on what you were just talking about to be true to yourself. You don't just need to be mature. You need to value yourself. You need to understand that your Australian accent comes because you live there and because you live there, you're probably the person who you are. An accent is an easy thing to pick on. We can take any other qualities which are not bad habits. They are intrinsic qualities of you. And how do you deal with them? I used to say I'm recovering perfectionist because I love the phrase. I heard it somewhere until I realized I can't recover from being myself. So you can say that certain things are bad habits, and yes, there is, and you see, it's a balance. Life, life is not a recipe. Do one, two, three. You really have to be present and ask yourself questions and be honest with yourself to be able to make decisions. You have to be able to ask yourself, is that just a bad habit which I can get rid of, or is this something that makes me me? And if it's something that makes you, I guarantee you, you will be better off if you just accept that dragon and learn to live with that and learn to learn to function with that find learn to to make it your blessing rather than your curse is my soviet origin is that my curse or am i going to turn it to become my blessing and there are qualities about about ourselves that we are scared to sometimes to admit qualities which are not popular in the in the society that values hustling and achievement maybe you are chill maybe you do love your family more than anything do you dare to that society values those social roles sorry we tend to pick the social roles which are valued by society so for example if you have to choose between your example between actually being a good parent and an entrepreneur we are by subconsciously choosing being an entrepreneur, because this is the social role which is valued by society higher than the social role of a parent. So admitting to yourself that actually that doesn't make you happy is a scary thing because you essentially have to admit to yourself, okay, I'm choosing the life of being considered not a success by society. But I'll drop it there. Now, when we come to self-love and self-care, I think that's another, sorry, heritage or, anyway, that's another, another result of 20 years of personal growth and transformation. Self-care is, is a tangible thing, which is very easy to understand. You wake up, you meditate, you do your yoga practice, you do your smoothie. It's clear, you understand. It's the recipe, it's the one, two, three, the tutorial. So we very often rely on self-care as the ultimate, as the ultimate example of self-love. And I'm sure you've heard this, that if you love yourself, you will take care of yourself. We equate self-care to self-love. But I want to give a warning that causality goes only one way. If you love yourself, you're very likely going to want to take care of yourself. But just because you take care of yourself is not the sign that you love yourself. Not at all. In fact, I've seen a lot of people who take perfect care of themselves but they hate themselves, no matter what they say. They're so hard on themselves, it's scary. They, they can't forgive failure. They can't forgive not being perfect. So self-care, a very simple example would be, I do not know if it comes with the video, but I have a, my phone in my hand. You charge this device because if you don't charge it, 
it will die. This is self-care. Self-care is about survival. Self-love is about thriving and self-love is not tangible. It's much harder to understand. It's, it's a relationship. So a very simple analogy would be, imagine a child who has everything, rich parents, good house, nannies, food, everything, good schooling, but the, the child's parents don't have time to spend with the child because they're too busy, whatever they're doing. Everybody understands this child cannot grow up into a happy adult because this is what self-care, all these decorations are self-care. Self-love is that relationship which we absolutely need. It's funny you say that because yesterday I was judging myself pretty hard and I got myself into a little bit of a funk and I came into the studio and I thought, hang on a second, I've been here before and let me go back through some of the mentors I've had over the years. And I thought about one question Tony Robbins said many years ago and it was ask a better question. So I made a little motivation board yesterday. It took me about 20 minutes to do. I printed off some motivational quotes. Jim Rohn, David Goggins, Jocko Wilnick is one famous quote. It's, he says good. His famous word is good. So whatever happens in life, it's good. And I reflected back on 20 years of personal development that I've gone through as well. And I thought to myself, hang on a second. I'm semi-retired. I've got a beautiful wife, two kids. I interview great people like yourself every day. I read books for a living. I'm living the life... I've hit all my goals that I want to do. Yes, I'm still striving and working on other things. But I was judging myself on one particular thing, which I was thinking about for weeks and it was putting me in a funk. And I thought to myself, ask yourself a better question. If you were in this situation years ago and you were reflecting back, your previous self would slap you in the face and say, wake up, you're living the life of your dreams. And it got me out of a funk straight away. And it was purely because I dropped the judgment of myself and thought, wow. And it was just one of those reflection things. So when you talk about self-care and self-love, yeah, I was taking care of myself. I was taking care of my business, my family, but I wasn't connecting with myself. I wasn't loving myself. I was judging myself. And it was like a bit of a dark cloud over me. And until I just asked myself better questions and reflected on my previous self. And that comes back to what we talked about, the dark side of personal growth. It was just a because I've studied this before, I could bounce back quickly once I changed my perspective on it as well. But yeah. And also, and also you've had the growth. You had, you, you had the opportunity to step back and say, I'm better now. But what do you say to people who are not better now? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I had a conversation. I had a conversation this morning with a content creator who's starting on his journey and he goes, I want to start creating content. I said, you definitely should start YouTube because it's a lot of people built brands off YouTube. And he's telling me about his origin story for five minutes. And he was like, my, my dad's native. I lived off the grid for two years. I bought a book on survival skills. I learned all this stuff. And I'm he like, he was so jazzed. And I was like, that's your story. That's your message. That's your content. But he wants to teach people about we're living in such a chaotic world that it's really slow when you're not offline. Anyway, it's great. And I was like, that's your story. That's your origin story. Own it, stick with it. That's you. And that's again, coming back to being authentic about being yourself. And yeah, I think all this ties into yourself, not judging your story, but owning your story and then self love and love your story as well. Even over it's or you're in a pickle. Yeah. I, I really feel like I, I have to say that because you said you replaced judgment with the right question. And I think that's where the key lies. We have to replace judgment with curiosity. 
Because no matter what your story is, curiosity is where growth starts. The reason why people are afraid of self-love, there are a few reasons and they're all puzzling to me, but one of the reasons is because people think that if they don't criticize themselves, if they don't have that fire under their ass, they won't grow, they won't change, they won't become better. And this is such a huge myth and misunderstanding. It comes from the, from the idea that humans are lazy and bad by nature. I don't believe in that. I think we are not lazy, we are not bad. In fact, there are two ways, two ways to, when you, your kids are growing up, when you teach your kids, there are two techniques. And I was born in Soviet Union, so I know one of the techniques very well. One of them is through punishment and fear. Or if you don't do well, you'll be punished by bad grades, by being a loser, by not being popular. And I remember when I was four years old, because I was apparently physically very talented, I was picked up for Olympic reserves in the Soviet Union, which is literally like this machine that created Olympians and Soviet Union had a lot of Olympic champions. I was crying because that system was based in punishment. They, I remember how they put me in the split on the first training session and I came home and I begged my mom never to take me there again. Since that, my relationship with sport has been very troubled. And that's, the, that's one of the consequences of approach by punishment through fear from punishment and through, through breaking people. And you might say, oh, but I was just, I didn't, I just didn't have what it took to become an Olympian. Yes, we are so focused as a society on the stories where people go through all of this, the story of Rocky Balboa or whatever, and they make it. But we don't, we close our eyes on the fact that this system creates a lot of waste material. And yes, in sports, I'm the waste material. And that's the only paradigm that contemporary society understands, that you have to go through struggle, otherwise you will never succeed. There is another paradigm which is very unpopular, but it also creates beautiful results. It's evolution and growth and learning through encouragement. So when your kid, your two-year-old probably is already walking, but let's say imagine a year ago when, you, when your youngest was learning to walk, the kid gets up, walks, falls down, and you say, stop it. If you keep doing it, you will never, you will never run. You will never climb trees. How dare you? Shame on you. Versus, oh my God, you made one step. Let's try again. This system, the system of encouragement also works, but we are afraid of it because we don't trust human nature. We think that if you only focus on the things that you're good at, you're not going to excel. So instead of doing what we are good at, what we love, we actually buy into a paradigm that I have to go through difficulties. I have to work on my weaknesses. I have to punish myself by not loving myself because I'm not perfect yet, because that's what we are taught. You only deserve love when you do the right things. And we grow up and we do the same to ourselves. Oh, so you actually, you actually snapped at that person? How dare you? What's wrong with you? Why, didn't you? why couldn't you just keep cool? Why couldn't you take a breath and reply when you were like, how, uh, have you ever noticed your self-talk? I'm not talking about you particularly, but if people notice their self-talk and imagined that they were talking like that, to someone that they truly love, to their child. Would you encourage your child for growth and development with the same kind of talk that you give yourself? Probably not, you'd probably have some compassion.
And I think that segues into also societal masks. I did a video many years ago about the Japanese say we all wear three masks and the mask that we show society, the mask that we show friends and family, and then the mask that we never show anyone. And I think segueing into the punishment and truly loving, we need to take off those masks and really say, you know what, we're in an evolution now where we know that, as you said, fear and punishment can only go so far. Uh, to get the results, but you could be a successful Olympian and be totally unhappy. All that, when you get the gold in the Olympics, two seconds later, it's over and you're retired, it's done. You're basically washed up. You're a 24-year-old, an Olympian gold medalist. And then what? And the question is, or you could still be finding yourself out at 37, going 40 or going through a new stage of life and just using encouragement of drop the mask. You don't have to, we don't have to wear the masks that society tells us we have to wear at the age we're at in the environment that we're at as well and comparing our lives with other people. I'm semi-retired and full-time dad with my kids. And I think about, hang on a second, I can always earn more money. I can always do another workout and get my six pack whenever, but I'm never going to get this time back when my boy's four years old or my girl is two. They're going to walk back and I'm never going to regret. I've heard so many people make it and say, I have so much regrets because I wasn't there for my kids when they grew up and they can never get that time back, even though they got to the quote unquote success. But again, they judge themselves on the failure of being a parent. Societal masks. What do you think about them and how do we remove them for our psyche as well? What are your thoughts on that? I actually, I'm actually at peace with the fact that we have to wear masks. It's the, the, in psychology, there's this social psychology, there's this branch about social masks, which is, which is natural. Just a very simple example. If you go on a holiday and when you come back, the story that you tell, let's say your children about that holiday and your friends and your wife would be a little bit different because you'd focus on different aspects of it because you have to adjust to the person that you're talking. We adjust to our, our environment and that's a natural, natural behavior. That's the thing I don't believe extremes too. So although I talk about authenticity, the way we in personal growth understand authenticity is a little bit on the extreme side where you just stay yourself in any kind of circumstances. But you know that in psychology, this kind of behavior is called, it's called something like about social unadaptability. In layman terms, it's called being sociopath or psychopath. So if you don't adjust to your environment, this is not a healthy behavior from the point of view of psychology. So it's okay to adapt to your, to your environment. It's fine. It's, it's healthy. It's productive. It's actually good. <laughs> I don't think that you have to be so unapologetically you that everybody around you is uncomfortable. <laughs> this is also not very good. But with that said, when you come back, coming back to the Japanese, do you ever take off the mask? Because that's the scary thing. Like, it's okay that there is the side that you don't show to the people who are close to you or to the world outside. The problem is that you don't show your face to yourself anymore. And here we come back to that whole idea that the obsession with perfectionism creates the dark side. We're scared that if we see ourselves what we are, we won't be able to love ourselves truly. And I'm not talking about that superficial, hey, I'm imperfect, so what? I love me, love me too. That doesn't say anything except that you have a loud voice. What I talk about self-love is when you can see yourself the way you are and acknowledge, okay, this is my dragon. I wish I was like everybody else, or maybe I did not know anything about everybody else, but maybe I wish I didn't have to live with that, but it is my dragon. Can I still be at peace with it? 
Can I get the best out of it? Can I use that dragon to become my blessing rather than my curse? Thank it for the fact that you've made me what I am. Yes, you make my life hard, but so what? I'll still live with you. That's self-love. That is self-love. And then an, another thing that's not spoken about a lot until you become really successful and you listen to lots of podcasts and you hear a lot of successful people talk about this is the imposter syndrome. Now, I've heard a lot of really super successful talk about that and it never goes away and you just manage to deal with it. I myself, not only a perfectionist, I suffer from the imposter syndrome. Just before this interview or most interviews that I do, I research so much on the person I'm interviewing that I have 25 pages of notes and forget about all of them just in case something happens and I can always rely on my notes. So that's a part of the imposter syndrome. I have to be, don't, I have to done, do all my research. I have to do this. I have to do that. What do you know about the imposter syndrome in the world of sort of high flyers and successful people? How do they manage with it or deal with it? Or what do you know about the imposter syndrome that... I have to take a moment to compliment you. You're so well prepared. I really, <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's, it, it was refreshing and it's good that you actually, the way you led the questions, it wasn't that you just dropped me, but something like, okay, now talk about that. So thank you for your preparation. It's nice to, to be in that environment. Now, my experience of 20 years in personal growth and working with the best authors in the world, every single one of them has, has experienced the moment. Who am I to be here? Who am I to do this thing? And I think that's just a side effect of, of doing things which are big and which are worthy of doing. You have to, you will end up being in the situation where you ask yourself, how did I end up here? What on earth am I doing? And literally every single famous person that we look up as if they're a god in the Olympus, they've all had those moments. I've heard every one of them share at least once a moment like that. But with that said, also, there's this other phenomenon, which I never remember the name of, but everybody knows it. It's a popular thing, so you will relate to that. There's the phenomenon that says that the less you know, <laughs> the more you feel it. And usually the imposter syndrome is the sign that you are actually probably stretching yourself and challenging yourself and doing things which are worthy. And knowledge is like an island and unknowledge is the ocean. The bigger the island, the longer the shoreline, the more you realize you don't really know. So with that said, coming back to self-love, I think it's when you know your own value, when you do what you love and you believe in what you do, then you finally find the motivation to actually challenge yourself and go out and do things which are bigger than you. And nothing, once, once you admit things about yourself, nobody can take you down with those very things. So I'm, I've had quite a rocky journey with my book, but I love my message so much. I believe in it so much. That yes, I know I have a weird accent, I don't follow the rules on stage, and I'm too talkative, and sometimes I'm too philosophical. I don't care, because I know that my message matters. And when I know that, I will actually go out and I'll challenge anyone. I am not afraid of anyone because I believe in what I do. So self-love, while we think that loving yourself unconditionally is going to make you complacent, that's misunderstanding of self-love. You're not lying on the sofa telling yourself that you love yourself because you truly love yourself. You do that because you're afraid. You're afraid that if you fail, you will have to not love yourself. So you don't challenge yourself. It's the ultimate sign of self-love when you have the courage to go and challenge yourself. It's like a child who has encouraging parents. They're so much more ambitious because they dare. They know that even if I fail, my, my mom or dad are still going to take me. So they have the courage to go and try to do things and fail occasionally. It's those children 
I'm perfectionist because I was brought up in Soviet Union I, in the punishment culture. I'm not competitive for one reason. I'm afraid of competition because I know that if I don't win, it's painful. So I'd rather not even try. You touched on something about sharing your fours, and I was listening to a podcast the other day. I think it was David Goggins, by the way. He said there's a movie, Eight Mile, with Eminem. And at the end of the movie, the way he wins this rap battle where they both rap battle in each other. And in one part of the movie, the guy tells everything about his life and he loses that battle. But the way he wins at the end, he tells everyone in the rap all about his struggles, all about his life. He tells everyone his flaws. And then when the other guy gets up to speak to rap battle him, he's got no ammunition because he just said all his flaws. So he basically let the cat out of the bag, opened himself up, and no one had anything on him because he was open, he was raw. And I think once you do that, you break through that barrier of, there's a, a thing I've heard before, which everyone knows, like the lion, once once the lion roars or like comes out, like it's un, it, unstoppable. Once you become authentic and open enough and mature enough to say, hey, I'm not perfect. I've, I've had challenges. I've been there. I've done that. People can relate to you as well and people can understand that. I think circling back to what you said at the start of the podcast is if you go around just being flawless like a diamond and you're perfect and you've this, that, and the other, you're not being authentic to yourself. But people know that you're not being real. But the more real you can be with other people, and I've noticed this myself, if you can open up yourself first, people open up to themselves straight away. So the quicker you can go deep with someone, as someone will go deep with you. But if you go shallow with someone, people won't go deep at all. So it's this game of be open, be honest, self-love, authenticity as well. And then also being in touch with your emotions. As a man, I'm definitely not, my wife always says that you're not in touch with your emotions because you're the masculine side. You talk about in the upcoming book as well about emotional literacy as well. I'm terrible at this. What is emotional illiteracy? How can men be better with their emotions? We do emotional literacy. I can tell you that women are also not very good with their emotions. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just something which is a little bit uh, sad about our society because emotional literacy is literally science. It's not even new age. It's not personal growth. It can be personal growth, but it's not spirituality or new age or anything of that. It's not where society is still trying to figure out the values. We accept mathematics. We accept writing and reading in school as curriculum. Somehow that very necessary field of life is being omitted. So in my book, I actually, I actually rely on psychology because I love, I'm one of the biggest amateur psycho psychology advocates out there. So I rely on psychological teachers, teachings to, to help people give them a very practical tool to deal with unpleasant emotions. Because, because life is not about avoiding pain. We talked about that in a way. Life is not about avoiding pain. Susan David says that. She's one of, she's one of the teachers in our, in our field and a TED speaker. She says, pain is, is the ticket of admission to a meaningful life or something along those lines. So if you want to have any meaning in your life, you have to be okay with the fact that there will be pain. There will be pain. It's not a question. When we grow up, somehow our parents or teachers or whoever instills that idea, that unicorn, that you can live a spotless, happy, never, not happy in, in, in that 
happy in a shallow way, life where there is no pain. It's, it doesn't exist. You will have to experience pain. So the question is not whether how to avoid it or how to make sure that you don't get there. The question is how do you experience it without getting broken? without getting damaged, without getting traumatized? How can you turn the pain towards not every pain can be turned to your advantage. If you lose a loved one, my mom lost her sister two years ago to COVID, in fact. These kind of situations, there's nothing good about that pain. But that pain sometimes highlights the beauty of your life, the beauty. It reminds you that you have had someone so dear in your life all your life. That person is still, like the memory of that person, the, the common story is still there. That pain highlights something beautiful about your life. When war started on our doorstep, Russia, Ukraine, I was so scared for my children. It was painful. But then it reminded me also that there is no certainty in life. And sometimes you do not know if tomorrow is even coming. But what you can do is use the moment that you are here right now with a loved one and you're safe and you're healthy. So sometimes pain can't be turned to your advantage, but it can be a reminder of, of what you have. And literally what I'm trying to share with my reader is, is that simple algorithm, how to deal with something so inevitable in our life that it stops poisoning your existence. It adds meaning to life as well. And at the end of the day, what is life without meaning and why go through life instead of growing through life? Just a quick thing with the story of pain, what came to my mind was the story of the Buddha. He lived as a prince. They sheltered him his whole life in a palace, never seen sick people, dying people, whatever. And he got to the age and it's like, what's that? There was a sick man. Then he seen a dying person. All of a sudden he had such an emotional up thing. He ended up leaving the palace and becoming a Buddha. And that was because of he was living under a rock of pain and let's say that he grew up with pain and they showed him the real world he probably wouldn't have become a buddha because that massive emotional pain that was withheld from him was such a catalyst for event it made him run away and become a buddha but here we are moving forward tell me christina we could talk for hours but when does the book come out the book comes out uh, in june in june in us it will be on the bookshelves in the major bookshops and i've heard recently that in airports as well i'm so excited about that but if you are pre-ordering the book or buying it from outside us i would recommend you do that through our website i have to remind myself of the <laughs> link i haven't said it so often it just it just Sorry, I hope you can cut it out. <laughs> or maybe it won't. <laughs> it's mindvalley.com forward slash um, book forward slash flossom, I believe, but I might be mistaken. <laughs> I have to check it. Yeah, but if you're buying it from outside US, I would recommend you buy it from Mindvalley's website because it comes with my program, which I recorded specifically to accompany the book because we knew we were going to do pre-sales while you're waiting for the book, also it shipped so much longer outside US. So I've created a 10-day program, which is called 10 Questions on Self-Love. It's connected to the book. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't take away anything from the book, but it lets you wait with more value. Just a funny thing you said about airport bookshelves. That's where I started the whole reading books. I worked, I worked in an airport for three years and I spent all my time in airport bookshops, reading books while working at the airport. And I believe you haven't made it as an author until you're in an airport on a bookshelf. I think that the ultimate, someone's just scrolling on a plane, they scroll into an airport bookshop, they pick up your book, they read it on a plane. I think that is the ultimate, I've made it. It's like an in-flight movie, an in-flight book. If you're at the airport and you're an author, I think that's the A plus of that. Um, 
Yeah, I've just got a massive emotional attachment of airport bookshops. It brings a lot of fond memories back to me. But thank you for being a guest on the Best Book Bits podcast. And to my audience out there, definitely follow Christina's work and books. I know you've done a few books before. It's called a pre-release book. So pre-release your copy of the book now. I'll have the links in the show notes. And I wish you all the best for the next stage and journey of your life as well. And I'm sure we will see more of you in the future as well. Michael, thank you so much for having me. It was a very enjoyable interview. No worries. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Okay.